Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture bugle. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. This week we're delighted to be joined by the boy with the Arab strap himself. Scottish indie pop megastar Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian joins us to talk about an extensive career of producing albums, floating music festivals, plus a Sundance Award winning film. We also welcome crime writer par excellence William Shaw into the studio. We'll be discussing The Dropout on Disney Star, starring Amanda Siegfried as disgraced biotech billionaire Elizabeth Holmes. Plus, Andrew Harrison and Linda Marrick go and see The Batman. And looks like rain. We listen to the sage, fragile sounds of the weather station. All this and more on this week's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Stuart Murdoch is a Scottish musician, writer, filmmaker and festival organiser. Best known as the lead singer and songwriter for the indie pop sensation Bell and Sebastian. And like me, a fellow baby of the Edinburgh festivals. (laughs) A bit of previous, their first studio album in seven years lands on the 6th of May. Sadly, their February 2022 UK tour has been postponed until November. But that does mean that Stuart has the chance to squeeze us into his (laughs) schedule today. Hello, Stuart. Thanks for dialing in. Where are you calling us from? Uh, I'm from sunny Glasgow this morning. Very nice to be with you all. Now, Bell and Sebastian is named after the TV adaptation of a French novel, and you've since described this, and you've since described the band as a product of botched capitalism. What's <laughs> the core idea of Bell and Sebastian's music? What persists throughout its various makeups and incarnations? That's a good question. I would say, just to illustrate the our emotions, and just to generally have a good old moan, a good old moan at the world. <laughs> in a musical way. I mean, that's really what songwriting is, after all. It's just sort of moaning, putting your... <laughs> moaning to music. <laughs> yeah, putting your point of view across. We've been moaning for... I've been Personally, I've been moaning for 26 years now, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't feel any better for it. <laughs> well, alongside your musical moaning, you're also very vocal on Twitter. You recently proclaimed that five of the most beautiful words you've ever read are Russian warship... Go fuck yourself. I do have to ask, what's the general (laughs) mood do you find regarding Russia and Ukraine in Glasgow at the moment? I mean, it seems vaguely ridiculous. I'm glad glad you brought that up because it it feels vaguely ridiculous to be talking about culture things and and to be putting out an album. It all feels so trivial compared to to what is happening. And I genuinely think that this will be uh, life-changing. My wife is American and she was saying, what are you talking about? 9-11. And and I said, well, you know, 9-11 was a shock, but this, you can't see the end game with this. There there doesn't seem to be any rules. It's going to affect us all. Everything's everything's changing. So I think people are a little bit shell-shocked up here as they must be down there. And we also have another guest joining us today. We certainly do. William Shaw is a best-selling crime novelist. He's been shortlisted for awards far too numerous to mention here. You also, William, organise panel talks and crime writers' association events across the southeast and beyond. Your books include the marvellous Breen and Tozer crime series and the newest series featuring DS Alex Capidi. But we know you, William, for working for over 20 years on titles such as The Observer, New York Times, Wired, Arena and The Face, and many moons ago, a small publication called Smash Hits. Hello, William. Lovely to have you back. Yay, Smash Hits. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Where we learnt our craft, maybe some might not say. Your latest in the KPD series is The Trawlerman, and that's out in paperback in a minute, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of out now, actually. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's the... 
Um, I'd done lots of books set in that bit of South Kent and then I mm. kind of thought maybe I'll do one from looking at the coast, from a trawler looking in. And mm. I've met this woman in Brighton who ran a, a fish shop there and she, her husband, she said her husband had been lost at sea. She said, actually, at the same time, I was in love with another man, but I couldn't marry him because they never found my husband's body. And you have to wait seven years. And I thought there's a plot in there. So I thought I'll have that because, of course, all her neighbours were probably saying she did it. Yes, Mm. absolutely. Has she come back to you for royalties then, William? (laughs) I'm keeping it very quiet (laughs) from her. Okay. You use your music knowledge in the books. You use them in the Breen and Tozer books. They're set in the 60s, so there's pop culture in there. Now, you once interviewed rap stars for your book Westsiders, Stories of the Boys in the Hood. Could that in any way help research for the hip-hop detective? Is this a new... Do you know, I'm trying I want, to think of new routes for you to when go When I was down. in Los Angeles yeah. writing it, HBO said, do you want to come and pitch a series to us? And I, I thought, God, I don't want to go for... This was when HBO was tiny, when Six Feet Under <laughs> was just starting. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to be a daily yeah, to do, that, that, do something stupid anywhere. like that. And I thought of this thing, what about, about a ghost story about yeah. hip-hop people? Because at the time it was full of horrendous death. And I thought, you could make a really interesting ghost story mm. set in Los Angeles. But I didn't even bother to pitch it. What an idiot. <laughs> There's still time. There really is. Um, I hear that the crime writers community is enormously supportive. Now, what is the great irony that the people dealing with the most gruesome of motives and human decisions gone badly wrong are quite a cuddly bunch? The, the politically correct answer is to say because we get all our badness out of course, our books. But yes. the real answer is we're working in quite a successful genre. And it's easier to be nice to each other <laughs> if you're working in a successful place. Yeah. Literary people. All hate each mm. other, you see. Children's authors all hate yeah. each other as well, secretly. Yes, because it's so competitive. Are we in the golden age of the police procedural? I think we're... I think, <laughs> I think we're... As somebody who writes police procedures, I'd say probably we're coming to an end of it, actually. I think we've, we've used okay. all the penitentiaries. I think it's going to change shape again. I think we're about yeah. to see something else. But we're definitely in the golden age of crime fiction. Well, that's where yours and my idea, the hip-hop detective, comes in, actually. <laughs> Let's quickly mention your Dead Rich book. That's from your... Alter Ego, G.W. Shaw. Now, it's a, is it a standalone or it's part of two? It, it's a standalone. And it's, you What's know, it again, about, actually, with what Stuart's saying, it's, it's, it's actually, it's quite awkward now because mm. it's, it's, you know, it was a great idea at the time, but it's set on a super yacht um, and it involves Russians. And hopefully um, that will... You know, but, it, you know, it's it's almost the last thing I want to talk about at the moment because of what's going on, because there's nothing funny about Russians and super yachts mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's about it's a sort of closed room. I, I'm trying to when I was a kid, I read all those sorts of um, Neville Shoot, uh, Alistair McKinney's books. And that's fallen away completely from the, the thing, the kind of adventure fiction. And yet I think all of us want an adventure of some kind. Mm. So I wanted to redo that kind of fiction. So it's kind of adventure fiction on, on a very swanky yacht. But I'm slightly nervous about it now for very obvious reasons. Hopefully quite soon there will be something really funny about uh, rich Russians and, and yachts. Let's cross our fingers. Well, Stuart, we've got more to talk about with yachts later. But before we crack on, a small reminder. You can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more, plus all manner of enticing merchandise. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. When Tiger Milk, Bell and Sebastian's first full-length album, was recorded over three days in 1996, just 1,000 copies were pressed into vinyl. 25 years and 10 albums later, one of those originals now goes for as much as £700. 
Since its inception by two Stuarts in Glasgow in 94, Balanced Fashion has morphed through various band members, side projects and collaboration, even a Sundance award-winning film. It's often been heralded as Scotland's greatest band and one figure who's remained constant throughout, Stuart Murdoch, joins us today. Let's start with a track from your new album, Stuart, A Bit of Previous. Here's Unnecessary Drama. So, Stuart, Balanced Bastion hit indie pop royalty after 98 with the album The Boy with the Arab Strap. But as an avowedly indie band, does mass acclaim matter to you? <laughs> I was unaware of the mass acclaim at the time. It's funny, our, our manager our manager explained to me in 1999 that for a short moment, uh, Bell and Sebastian had the zeitgeist. And well, once he had explained to me what zeitgeist meant, we realised that it had sort of sailed by in that in that short moment when we released our, our third record. We didn't really leave Glasgow very much and we tended always to be working on a record, so, sort of in a bunker like you are just now in an underground uh, studio. So we we really didn't know what was what was going on. So our our moment of uh, fame passes by. Scotland runs quite literally through your music. The 100 metre Olympic gold medalist Alan Wells cameos as your coach in the video for I'm a Cuckoo. The River Air features on your album covers and the bagpipes and Sleep the Clock Around soundtracked my time at Edinburgh Uni. And I remember from your last gig at Usher Hall, um, you said that you really enjoy the chippy sauce once you cross the <laughs> mate. So what role does Glasgow in particular in Scotland play in your music? Well, it's just where we live. I think we've been too lazy to, to go anywhere else. Traditionally, bands would go... Before us, traditionally, bands would end up in London or if they were lucky, New York or Los Angeles, once they, they got a degree of success. we There was too many of us. We just stayed in Glasgow. We didn't seem... The internet was just starting. We didn't... There didn't seem to be any great reason. Also, we wanted to just remain on an independent label. Everything remained Glasgow. It's funny, we used to... You mentioned the, the bagpipes there. We, we recorded... We used... Glasgow as a backdrop to everything we did. I used to work in a in a church hall as a janitor during the time when the, the band was in the early days of the band. And we used the church hall to record in and we were recording the boy with the Arab strap in, in the church hall. And we could hear through the microphones, we could hear the sound of somebody playing the bagpipes. It was it was leaking through the the windows. That's the disadvantages of not being in a studio. And then of course somebody said, that would sound good on the record. We went across to the tenement across the street, rang the bell until we got the right flat and invited uh, the man down uh, to play the bagpipes on the record. And that's how that stuck. And that's how that came about. I had a very similar experience in my student flat in Edinburgh, except the sound was just as leaky and probably went on the top of podcasts I was making at the time. Now, Stuart, you say that you like the taste of scotch, but you're allergic to alcohol. And though your own spirituality permeates your music, you're neither a Christian with a capital C, those are your words, nor afraid of a tongue-in-cheek tune or two. What's behind the blend of the sort of ambiguous whimsy, but also straightforward matter-of-fact that comes into your lyrics? I think you're 
blissfully unaware of whimsy when you're producing it, thankfully. I mean, what, what a terrible thing it would be to be a whimsical person and know it. <laughs> uh, I mean, you simply wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to get out the door or get on a bus or, or you know, get money out of a machine. Um, no, we do, we do okay. I, you know, music ideas just come out of you. It's like, uh, you know, William would be able to say, you take everything in, you take the world in, it percolates, it comes out uh, in your own particular way. And my particular way just happens to be songs and stories. We've mentioned politics briefly as well. And I know that your song, The Eighth Station of the Cross Kebab House, was inspired by the band's <laughs> visit to Israel and Palestine. What role does pop music play in politics? And I suppose the other way around for you too. Well, that's a massive question. That's a, and I have pondered that before. <laughs> and um, it's tricky. I mean, politics should probably be involved in music as much as it should be in the you know, the Winter Olympics, i.e. a little bit, you know. How many political songs do you really love? You ask yourself that question. Some people can just do it. You know, Billy Bragg can just do it and you feel it and it comes from him. And that's because it means something to him and it's personal. From time to time, something happens to us. We were invited to to Palestine. This was at the time when they were building the wall between the, the higher wall between the Palestinian people and the is, Israeli settlements. And uh, Chris and I were invited down there to report for a magazine called Q. And of course, we had experiences. We met real people. We were right down in Gaza. We would drive half an hour and we'd be at the, the seaside of a beautiful resort in Israel. And so the whole experience affected us in a personal way. And that's how I was able to to write my song. But it's quite rare, I think, that that happens to you. I, I don't I don't feel like I have politics in my blood or at my fingertips at all times. And I think of Q as well, because our good friend and fellow presenter, Andrew Harrison, of course, former editor. Stuart, you've twice curated your own music festival at Pontins called the Bowley Weekender, which features many friends of the podcast like St. Etienne, Jarvis Cocker and the Divine Comedy. But back in 2019, Japanese Breakfast and Always, both future friends of the podcast, if you're listening, <laughs> set sail with you on the Boaty Weekender from Barcelona. Tell us what it's like hosting a festival on a Mediterranean cruise liner. On a massive yacht. Um <laughs> Yeah, I know. It, it, it's funny, even in two years' time, I, I think even with the increased awareness, ha Glasgow having held the recent COP26, we've actually come in for a little bit of flack for having done the festival on a, a yacht, yacht uh, sorry, you know, um, liners not being the, 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 the greenest of entities. We'd think twice about doing it again. We'll probably come back and do something more uh, local and greener. But saying that, it was amazing. I mean, it was lovely. It was, we, we've actually been trying to do this for 20 years. Uh, my dad was a sailor and the whole idea grew out of um, the notion of being pretty lazy. We were actually going to do it on a Caledonian McBrain ferry when the band first started and we were going to sail around dredged ports of Britain. <laughs> and take, take Surely the band though, and, the admin, what's that? you're a rock star. What, what is the admin like, though, on actually <laughs> organising other rock stars or pop stars to 
to come and play at a certain time and riders and all that sort of thing. Do you like doing that bit? Yeah, it's kind of fun. I, I, I love that thing you said earlier about all, uh, like crime writers. Well, maybe not crime writers hate each other, but uh, <laughs> ch- children's authors all hate each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a when you when you suddenly you you go from being the turn to being the organizer. Mm. You see a, you see a different side of things, yeah. and everybody that's super friendly before. It feels like everybody knows their place. They know where they should be in the bill. They're like, I'm not playing before him. I'm not, no no fucking, no fucking way am I going on (laughs) before Bell and Sebastian or, you know. Um, So it's, it's fun though. It's interesting. Mm. You, you, Mm. you, you draw up this huge list of bands. For the first Bully Weekender, uh, it included the Velvet Underground, Blondie, and we didn't get any of those. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, then you, you get you get a bit more sensible. Um, mm-hmm. It is fun, though. Now, not content with producing award-winning albums, political activism or organising flotillas come music festivals, you also wrote and directed your own film in 2014. God Help the Girl is a story of nervous breakdown and recovery with Ollie Alexander and Emily Browning. And it's based on the all-women Balance Bastion spin-off band of the same name. How did you go about casting and, and what was the whole experience of making a film like? Well, it was magic, but a bit of a nervous breakdown as well. Um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It took years. It's hard to get something that grows from a, a, a tiny seed to a finished thing, uh, to an actual film. And to get permission to direct it yourself and to get the money and everything. But it was amazing. I loved, I loved living with the creation of that. That was my first big sidestep from the band. And it started with the, started writing for female voices. And then that became a character. Then I started writing for the character. That was the most fun is actually sitting down for the first time, uh, writing for characters. That's the first time I'd ever done it. Uh, and then it, it, it just grew from there. Now, it's time for a bit of a personal story from me because my closest friend, Bethy, and I first came across your music when we were both younger teenagers. And Balance Bastion became the soundtrack to our friendship and especially the song Piazza. So when we first saw you live back at Edinburgh's Usher Hall, Balance Bastion happened to skip over the part in the set list where the song normally comes, but you sang it in the encore and you came down in the crowd and sang it to us. And we mentioned that the tour has obviously been postponed because of the pandemic. And I wondered for you, what do you miss most about those touring moments and being on the road? It's such a yin and yang experience. Um, I, I tend not to think about touring at all when we're at home. You know, that it's nice that we, you know, you focus on family, you focus on making records. You've, you've got a very Glasgow based uh, thing and actually going on tour it almost feels like a bit of a pain in the arse to think about, oh God, what do I need? I'm going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be, but then see that moment that you described actually by the time you're sitting on the stage, singing that song in the middle of a set and you've got an audience, it's, it's all worth it. It's, it's the most thrilling thing. It's the best thing ever going on tour. And, uh, you know, we miss all those, <sighs> miss all those places. Some very kind folks in the crowd took some films and I think it even made it into the Scottish sun. So I'll share it with you afterwards and you can remember with me. Now let's talk about your new album. Tell us all about it because it's very upbeat, a bit of previous. Sure. Well, we were meant to go to Los Angeles two uh, two years ago, just uh, this typical Bell and Sebastian, but um, uh, I'm sure... You know, many people got their plans changed by COVID. The, the day that we were meant to leave was the day we got locked down. So obviously we changed our mind. So everybody kind of stayed in their houses for a few months. And then we thought, look, this isn't going to, this is going to take a while. We're not going to go to LA. 
let's take the studio our rehearsal room let's turn it into a recording studio and that's what we did we gave everybody a, like a separate booth a separate sort of covid space within the year we started getting down to the recording with a vengeance we thought we'd produce it ourselves and it became a very a very positive experience especially especially during that time we were very fortunate to be able to work in a meaningful way is it your version of a disco album? You know, the disco genre of lockdown albums, you know, as as Kylie has showed us and that sort of thing. Yeah. I wondered I, if it was that I, in a way. It's, it is, you know, it, this isn't one of, this isn't Shedcore. This isn't Taylor Swift well, going off and discovering herself. It, this is joyful, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that the, the COVID experience would have made much difference in the way that the record came out because mm. in a sense, a studio is like a bunker, is like being in lockdown. Mm. You, you are very locked in when you're yeah. in a studio and uh, so saying that though uh, and Stevie would Stevie and the group would attest to this we have been trying to make a disco record for 20 years I mean we're always <laughs> trying to make a disco yeah. record we love disco the actual form of the music is is so amazing and uplifting I loved it so, it is really upbeat and at this time of year it does feel like emerging into spring but there's a lot of Buddhism on it as well I mean there's a lot of quite explicit talk about mm. about um, sort of spirituality death and those things and still with a sunny background as well, well. <laughs> thanks for noticing William that's, that's so nice that you noticed that I think normal rock critics they don't really want to go there they're not quite sure and but it is it's laced through I, I, I had a dream that my Buddhist uh, uh, nun teacher who's called Gen Machig. Um, she was in my dream and she was listening to the record and she was helped me to pick the singles from the record. And um, she picked, she was like, okay, it's the ones with the Buddhism. That's the ones I like. And there's a particular song called Sea of Sorrow. And she knew mm. straight away that mm. that was about the Buddhist situation called samsara, which we find ourselves in. It's a general dissatisfaction mm. with this life. And she said, that's the one. That's the one they should play. Fantastic. <laughs> it's I'm a 6 8 rhythm. It's never going to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? you can be proved wrong. Uh, Golden Brown, 3 4. Um, <laughs> what I w- wanted to say is I wanted to flag up your guided meditation session, Stuart, which is an obvious follow up question um, to this. They're absolutely fantastic. You talk about the Sea of Sorrow in there. Who's the audience? What kind of feedback are you getting? And where can people see your guided meditation? So just on the it's on the Bell and Sebastian Facebook page every Sunday at 7.30 GMT. Um, in the morning or the evening? Oh, sorry, for... in the evening. Thank okay, you. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, 7.30 <laughs> in the evening. I think yeah, evening time yeah. is a good time to, you know, mm. to bring it in. Mind you, saying that when you, the audience is all over the place. Some people are making breakfast in Hawaii or, you know, going, going to bed in Singapore when we're, when we're doing the podcast, started it at the start. Of, that's what I did at the start of lockdown. I've been getting all this wisdom. How about trying to, mm. you know, trying to share it? I do. I love sharing it. I try to share it with my wife. She's like, "Don't give me the Buddha." That it's just she's not, she's not interested. She's juggling two kids. She's trying to make. Don't give me mm. the Buddha. So I so I started the podcast. There's very few rap albums you listen to straight away and you feel you know. And it's like a lot of those, there was sort of like Holland Dozier, Holland stuff I heard coming through in it. You know, so these these bits that you think you know are in there and then you do something else on the top. The other bit that's always, I've always wanted to ask you, is did somebody ever tell you never to, to sing in the octave? Because the way your voice just, you, occasionally you just take these flights upwards or downwards. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You keep it, it it's, it's all over the place in the best way. It's a risk, isn't it? But you just, yeah, you just got to go with it. Do you know, when you guys mentioned the list of publications that William was involved in, I was waiting for you to say, and a little magazine called Zigzag. 
Of course. Well, it is on the list. Sorry, I missed that out. Look, Zigzag, look, yeah. Look at this, look at this. Oh, <laughs> yeah, my, my goodness. God. This is Stuart is holding up. Wow. <laughs> An Classic archive. era. Motorhead era. <laughs> what year is it, Stuart? It's 1980. It's, a, it's the Christmas issue featuring Toya, uh, Echo and the Bunnyman, and... Uh, Motorhead, Lemmy's holding That's... a can of special brew there. And they're dressed as And you know how much that is worth these days? I don't, I don't know. Virtually <laughs> nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and what position were you on the magazine at that point? I wasn't. I was still... Okay. I, I crawled into the magazine in, in 1983 and said, okay. can I write an article about the Smiths? And it was like, have your desk at that point, because they were so desperate for people. Now, a bit of previous drops in May, and listeners can still get tickets for your rescheduled shows in November. But with such an extensive repertoire, gig goers must always be discovering new songs when they come to Bell and Sebastian gigs, Stuart. So, what are some of your surprise and maybe new favourites that you like to pepper into your set lists? It'll be a surprise for us if we actually learn. We have a problem with new songs in, in that we, <laughs> you know, you write so many, and it's it's a. And then they become reinvented in the studio and it takes a lot of work to actually learn to play them live. So we're really trying to focus on bringing some of these, uh, some of the ones off the, the new record to life. We, we only end up with two or three and, and it should probably be a bit more. Crack on. Every week, we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs to the delight of our listening ears. They go straight on the playlist. The link is in your show notes. William, what's yours and why do you love it? Um, It's We Are Evergreen or Occasionally Evergreen, a French band, three-piece and a track called Solid Ground. And I work Mm. listening to FIP, which is a Parisian station. You mentioned it I always mention it because it's where all my music comes from (laughs) because the chatter is all in French so it doesn't stop me working and when especially when there's a war on most of it passes you by you know the news um which is which is just quite useful but also they play wonderful eclectic music and this one just really struck me because it's got a really nice sort of North African string sort of sound going over some disco beats fantastic let's give it a listen this is evergreen which would be vert no vert jamais would be never green that's the nearest (laughs) I can get with solid ground Andrew, Harrison that is, and regular on the show film critic Linda Marrick went to see The Batman this week. Much to the disdain of the people sitting around this table, they managed to get a ticket. Let's listen to what they think now. Fear is a tool. But when that light hits the sky, it's not just a call. a warning. I've been trying to reach you. Find the gun! This is about a king. And Rither's the match. I can take care of myself. 
this continues, it won't be long before you've nothing left. I don't care what happens to me. It's only gonna get worse for you. Whoa, take it easy, sweetheart. Hear everything they say, ain't you? Maybe we're not so different. Who are you under there? So that was a taster of The Batman. I'm the Andrew Harrison and I've got the Linda Marek with me. We went to the pictures to see it, didn't we, Linda? Yes, we did. How exciting that oh, was. Yes, we have differences of opinion, <laughs> don't we? So the setup is <laughs> Gotham City is still a sinkhole of crime. The Batman yeah. <laughs> is Mr. Vengeance. Crime and depravity are signaled by graffiti everywhere because that's the worst crime that can possibly happen. And somebody is murdering the great and the good, district attorneys, prominent citizens, so forth, doing it very brutally with hammers. Linda, give us your overall take on The Batman. I know you weren't very keen not to give anything away, <laughs> but I really liked it. I liked it a lot. What I liked about it, it's a very sort of performance-led story. Mm. You've got some great actors in there, and I think that's what I liked about it. I really like big, hefty sort of roles for people to sort of sink their teeth into, and that's what I liked about it. I also really liked the way it looked. I thought it was grungy. I thought it was darker than usual, but also sort of very different from the Zack Snyder stuff. I liked it a lot. What I didn't like about it is the fact that it was there was a whole sort of the last chapter had – a half an hour added to it that didn't need to be there. I thought it was, it's three hours long. It really didn't. It's one of the, you know, sometimes we talk about films being, I, I, I jokingly said on social media that no film should be over three hours long. Obviously I was joking. Obviously some films are three hours long and they need to be three hours long. This one did not need to be three hours long. I just thought that he completely ran out of ideas towards the end and we sort of descended into this absolutely ridiculous sort of, explosion sequences, which I I think a film didn't really need. All the things that you liked about it were, for me, the things that were profound disappointments because, yes, there are. <laughs> this is absolutely studded with fantastic actors. They had so little material to work with. Uh, but let's talk about oh. this version of Batman first. Our bats. Uh, Robert Pattinson. <laughs> Batman is now like James Bond or Doctor Who. Everybody has to give mm-hmm. their everybody has to give their Batman, give their different interpretation. What did you make of this one? Because for me, it was like he's got one register, and it's kind of strained repression. Oh no, I didn't think that at all. I really like Robert Pattinson. Mm. I think he's a fantastic actor, and I liked him. I really liked him in Tenet. I just thought he was fantastic in this. I think Matt Reeves definitely did have this kind of vision of giving us an emo Batman. Uh, which maybe didn't work so much. I, I, I think I would have preferred sort of more a more brooding Batman, but I, I accept emo Batman. It worked for me. I really liked him. I, I thought he was fantastic. I'm actually quite dismayed to see that. I think the people who liked it just liked it, and the people who didn't like it really absolutely hated it. I'm kind of disappointed about that because I can't. I completely see what Matt Reeves wanted to do with this Batman. And I really liked um, the, the performances. I, I thought, yeah, I thought it looked great and, and I liked the story. I sort of th- looked long and hard for this this emo Batman with insights into the human condition <laughs> and, and couldn't find it anywhere at all. I agree, he was great in Tenet because he was an action hero with a, a with, with a hint of irony and a hint of humour, the, the sense that only a mad person would want to embark upon this life and this is a charismatic yeah. mad person. In the case, I thought this was the flattest Batman that we've seen in a very, oh, very no. long time. Okay. 
You know, we begin with, I am vengeance, I am vengeance. We have heard this before. It's a very dark <laughs> Batman. We've seen, how much, dark, without, without the screen being matte black, Batman can't get any darker. So you need to take yeah. it somewhere else. And I've, I felt that this was just an nth generation pushing out of how dark and how gritty and how clenched jawed can we get. I was particularly annoyed as well by the treatment of the villain, the Riddler. Now, the Riddler. You know, yeah. I was about to say in real life, the Rid- the Riddler in canon in comics world mm-hmm. is a kind of supply teacher Joker, isn't he? He's like, well, you know, he's, he's a similar kind of thing, not quite the Joker level, but he is a ludicrous figure who lives in a world of conundrums and the idea of yeah. playing mind games. And Matt Reeves presents him as this kind of saw style torture porn sadist, heavily influenced by the comic Hush. Uh, I was actually quite angry. I thought it was quite cruel to the character. Nobody's expecting Frank Gershon and a, a green suit <laughs> with question marks on it. But honestly, do, you, do we need yet another sadist? I didn't see the Riddler as that. I saw him as a more of a pathetic sort of incel character, this guy who gets a few followers on on the internet and thinks he's a, you know, sort of a God's gift to everyone and he's got a mission of sort of righting the wrongs. Um, I, I think he is very delusional. I think it's a, a sort of a, a commentary on that, really. I really liked it. I thought also what I really liked about the film is that there was a lot of homage being paid to films like like sort of 1970s investigative stuff, you know, like All the President's Men. Uh, All the President's Batman. Chinatown. Yeah. <laughs> See, that I'd watch. Uh, China, Chinatown. There's a, there's a lot of sort of uh, even, even, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, um, I think, there are some really good ideas in there. Like I, I literally the the only problem I had with it is that it over, it's uh, overstayed its welcome a bit because it didn't need to be that long. And I just felt like there was some kind of like budget, uh, you know, into it. And then when they got, when they finished the film, someone decided sort of to put in a f- few more explosions towards the end. And I, we didn't need those. But if the story was strong enough, the characters, in, the interpretation of these characters was strong enough, Linda, you would not have found it boring after three hours. Dune is oh, like three yeah. hours. I mean, finish, no, no, I'm no. like, have you finished already? I want more of this because it was so well done. <laughs> here's another thing. Here's a, a further rants of me against this Batman. The great Batman mm-hmm. stories, the villains in the great Batman stories are kind of lords yeah. of misrule, not just the Joker and the Riddler, but the Penguin as well. They, they, they are there to be in sharp contrast to what a po-faced, stick-up-the-arse character Batman is. And you see it in the Alan Moore comics that, you know, what it's really about is the insanity of being Batman and they're there to be his foils. And so are, so are the supporting characters like, you know, Alfred the Butler, played by Andy Serkis, not yet Commissioner Gordon, played by Jeffrey Wright. They're, they're, they're all there to be Batman's foils, not his echoes. And this is what I found so frustrating about it. The Alfred-Bruce Wayne relationship, nothing new is brought to it. Yeah. In fact, we don't even get that slight twinkle that past Alfreds have had where you sort of almost feel like you're watching Arthur with Dudley Moore you know where the butler is constantly mocking the boss I think that was a kind of a deliberate thing I think what worked uh, the, the the whole the franchise and sort of the the, the everyone has ever made Batman's been accused of is sort of rehashing the story of the, the parents being yeah. sort of killed in the, in the alleyway and, and I think Matt Reeves was deliberately trying to stay away from sort of too much of that kind of I mean there are allusions to his father's dark past or or not i'm actually quite happy they didn't redo the whole sort of killed in an alleyway bullshit you know as usual i think that was a deliberate thing to sort of try but i i i agree with you on that 
I loved Paul Dano. I am a fan of Paul Dano anyway, and I, I'll watch him in anything, but I thought he was fabulous in this. I think there's some really good performances in this. And Oh, John Torturo as Carmine Falco yes. is fantastic. It's very funny that uh, John Torturo, you don't see him for ages, and then now he's in the... Uh, severance oh, as well as in this yeah. <laughs> yeah he's fantastic in severance uh yeah i liked it i'm afraid i disagree with you i <laughs> it worked for me it worked for me the, like i said the only thing that didn't work for me was it being uh, long but then again i'm wondering whether the sort of me being sort of annoyed at it being too long was the fact that i was worried about missing my train towards the end <laughs> of the film because this we went to a screening which started already quite late so we knew it was going to finish quite late so maybe my apprehension was because of I knew I had to leave and sort of rush to get my last train home. But yeah, I, I I liked it. I think this Batman would have felt too long at an hour and thirty minutes because it is nothing. <laughs> there's nothing new to it. It takes the material. It takes and it yeah. does it adds absolutely nothing. It, it makes the it makes the Christopher Nolan movies look look nuanced and light with glimpses of hope in there. And you just said, <laughs> you know, exploring the dark past. Is there nobody in Gotham City who hasn't got a dark past? I'd like to meet just one person. The question at the back of my mind was always, what exactly? Why is this guy a hero? He seems to have nothing to set himself apart from the various junkies, psychos, murderers, corrupt individuals yeah. and so forth who, who fill up Gotham City. And the film ends on a totally unearned note of kind of Jesus-y saviour business, which had me yeah, really grinding yeah, yeah. my teeth. I did like that. The only things I really liked about it were Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. Yeah. She's pretty good, although she's trapped within the humorlessness of this movie. And of course, you know, personally, I'm going to love St. George's Hall in Liverpool transformed into a bit of Gotham City with gigantic <laughs> skyscrapers behind it and uh, Batman jumping off the liver building. They were, they were the only yeah, bits well, I really liked, to be honest with you. Listen, I, I really liked, I was going to ask you what you thought of Zoe Kravitz. I thought she was fantastic. The relationship between them was actually better than any other relationship in the, uh, between two superheroes in a superhero movie. I don't movie. know. I, it's, I, it's no Hawkeye really, and Black Widow. Come on. Well, no, I really thought, I really bought into that. I really <laughs> liked it. I, I, I think aesthetically, they both look great as well. I like it a lot. I, I liked it more than you did, I know, but I like, I'm actually quite dismayed that the people who completely hated it because I don't think it's such a bad movie. It's just we've seen it all before and it's time to take it somewhere else. You know, Grant Morrison, the comics writer, he's just launched this Substack. And uh -huh. his whole argument is, why in the hell do we need to take these brightly coloured kind of archetypal hero figures who are supposed to be there to show you how, you know, what the world would be like if we all tried to do our, you know, tried to be our best selves? Why do we have yeah. to turn them into these tortured, miserable, grim, dark figures? I think it's been done. It's been done to death. Let this be the end. Let's get back to, <laughs> okay. to Adam West and the bat shark repellents. This is what oh. the world needs right now. <laughs> We now return you to your regularly scheduled Bat Podcast. Thank you, Linda. Oh, no problem. Blood, sweat and 20 years in prison. The Dropout, an eight-part series on Silicon Valley disruptor Elizabeth Holmes, has just appeared on Hulu, Disney Star in the UK, and we've stayed up very, very late watching it all for you. Amanda Seyfried stars as Elizabeth Holmes, the determined young woman who drops out of Stanford to found a new blood testing startup, Theranos, named after the great god of biotech scams, <laughs> and is now awaiting sentencing on four counts of fraud. But what did we make of the Fake It or Make It schema series? Here's the trailer. 
The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. What if you could test your blood in your own home? And what if it wasn't a whole vial, but just a drop? I'm going to drop out of Stanford. This machine is going to change the world. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the way things have always been done. They want to change things now. Together, we're making healthcare accessible to everyone in this country. I don't understand how you're doing this extremely complex chemical engineering with a high school degree. This technology is 10 years away. Your idea is impossible, so you just keep trying. Do or do not, there is no try. That's Yoda. If you want this, you have to dedicate yourself. What are you willing to do to get it? I can't give them one reason to doubt me. It's not even close to working yet. What are we going to show at the demo? We're going to tell them that we don't have a working prototype. Right? Our Series B closed at $165 million. Get the money! I know what you did at the demo. The demo was an inspiring step forward. Don't tell anyone else. I'm going to protect you. This is an inspiring, an inspiring step forward. This isn't just my job. This is who I am. Anybody who doubts my company doubts me. William, let's move fast and break things. There are a slew of scam storylines on TV and streaming at the moment. There's Inventing Anna about Anna Delvey. We Crashed about WeWork. There's the Tinder swindler even. We can join that. And also adjacent to this, there's the big pharma drama. Sorry. (laughs) Dope sick on Sky. What does the dropout promise? Well, it promises an investigation into the wonderful Elizabeth Holmes story, Mm. which is one of the great classic stories, isn't it, about all the schadenfreude we want is laid out there (laughs) because we really want to hate her, don't we? Mm. I mean, that's kind of what Mm. all these sort of things like Fry and Enron, Inventing Anna, they're kind of we want to hate them and then find a story out where somehow, you know, once if you start with an audience hating people, you can do things with do things, can't you? I think that's very interesting because I was thinking that maybe it's the opposite and it's very difficult when you start hating the character. Yeah, I guess that's also the point. But, you know, they're trying to make you dislike her and then like her, right. aren't they? Yeah. Um, because they, the assumption is that she's an evil capitalist, which I think I think, I think we can probably share, actually. And the real danger of it is that they try and soap operaize this. That, and there are real elements in this. I thought that it starts feeling a bit like a soap opera mm-hmm. in that they're, they're, all the history is going to prove what a bad person she's turned out mm-hmm. to be. You know, her poor father has lost all his money in the Enron crash. Her boyfriend, his mm. father died because of a poor medical diagnosis. So you get all these sort mm. of strands leading up to why she's going to turn into this evil, manipulative person. And I kind of thought, well, that's a bit too obvious. That's a bit too obvious. And then, weirdly enough, you get sort of William um, H. Macy coming in and suddenly the characters start getting more interesting. Mm. Did you find that? I did. I didn't want to watch too far because I actually quite enjoyed waiting for the next episode and not binging it. Otherwise, I'm not going to take it all in. And also, I know that people won't have seen much. They may have seen three episodes, but by now, I didn't want to do any spoilers as well. But yes, I agree. But I also think it's very interesting the way it portrays Elizabeth Holmes, who is an incredibly difficult person to Mm. portray because she's a human. She's still alive and she's complicated. She isn't a character. Yelena, what were your thoughts? Did you expect... Because you know a bit of the backstory, don't you? And obviously there's been podcasts on it. There's an Mm. HBO film about it. This is a story that has been well trod already. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying 
just then because I think actually what's more interesting than looking at the portrayal of Elizabeth herself is more how everyone else around her reacts to her Mm -hmm. and projects their own images on her. And that for me is where I saw the overlap really with inventing Anna because the whole story behind that is really... Anna almost acts like a mirror for everything that's bad about Tell everyone around Tell us very quickly if someone has been living under a rock who Anna Delvey is. So and Anna that's Delvey, a Netflix show. Yes. So Anna Delvey is an... Uh, she basically manufactures her whole fortune through the relationships that she has with other people and through the way that she portrays herself online. So no one's really sure about where she comes from or mm-hmm. who she is. And, and she everyone... scams people out of thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, millions. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, that's what I found really interesting because the way that Amanda Seyfried plays Elizabeth mm. Holmes, she really feeds into a lot of stereotypes around what it's like to be a woman in business and a CEO. You mm. see her training herself to have a deeper voice in the same mm. way that Thatcher might have done in the 80s. Mm. But actually, I think all of the reviews that I've read about this talked a lot about how they didn't necessarily buy into how Holmes would have convinced others to buy into her. But I think that that overlooks something really important, which is that it's not really about the financial viability of Theranos. Mm -hmm. It's more that people wanted Theranos because it's all time of the big tech boom and the whole series is set amongst the launch of the iPhone Mm -hmm. and all these books coming out by Wozniak and Jobs. And Mm -hmm. it's all part of that boom Silicon Valley period. And the disruptor stereotype that we're now seeing is becoming that. Stuart, what did you make of it? I'm just thinking about the actual story and the the Mm. context that you put on it there. It was almost like Theranos was the one that got away. It was the one that fell down Mm. between the cracks. It's the one that should have worked maybe, but didn't. And it Mm. shows you what a fine line it is between all these success stories and this disaster. Uh, Because it it probably could have been any of those successful people. They've, They've probably all done bad things. And I think maybe... It occurred to me, it felt like you're holding on to a balloon. The balloon is the lie. And, and uh, you know, when do you let go? And she just, she couldn't let go. And she, um, but she took everybody else with her. I thought Amanda Seyfried was amazing, actually. I, I, I thought mm. she was great. And initially I was thrown because what I saw her in, know her from is Mean Girls. Right. Yeah. And she plays a ditzy character in 2004. Four in Mean Girls. This yeah. is almost like twenty years later. Yes, she looks practically the same, and she's still playing a. She still manages to play a nineteen-year-old student, which uh, she does exceptionally I well, doesn't it? We all know she's not nineteen. Sure, but it doesn't matter. It it, yeah. it completely convinced me. I just didn't have to yeah. question it. So yeah. I, I thought she was terrific. Does this? I mean, this promises to answer questions, does it? Or is it here to pose them? It's about as we say, the disruptors, it's about venture capitalism, it's about startup culture. Does it just put out more questions than it answers? Is that what it's for? Because I don't think this is going to be the first of the type of series. This is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to get more about, I mean, they're almost like a detective, aren't they? Mm. It's the maverick. It's someone coming in and not playing by the rules. But in this one, we know from the start that she is going to fail. We are, we're investigating that era now, aren't we? Mm. We've got a whole lot of younger people who are no longer looking at the Steve Jobs generation as gods, mm. and they're investigating it. And it was, you know, I mean, I, I can remember, because among the other titles, I worked for Wired in America briefly doing that uh, bit, and yeah. I can remember going out and coming back with a story saying, well, this is really interesting, but this is just like, this is the th- thought experiment. And they said, well, don't write that. Write it like it's going to happen. And it's like, that's exactly the same pressure all those companies were under mm. at the time, you know. 
everything was a kind of thought experiment around mm. there and it was being monetized and then it got really dangerous. So it is well worth us spending some time looking yeah. around. But it, I mean, there are lots of themes that are similar to Wall Street. I mean, this is just us examining that idea of capitalist greed man mm. um, under a new light and under a new microscope, maybe. And, and also the women thing is interesting. I think what you mentioned about her character is really, because the character I thought was amazing that comes in a bit later is Stephen Fry. Yes. yes. Uh, and he As does Ian a, Gibbons, he does a bang up job actually because yeah. his, he can be quite variable, can't he, in his performance? But he's <laughs> really brilliant as the older man mm. who thinks he's looking after this poor young woman, mm. and he gets suckered into it not because he's an evil sexist man in that sense, but there's a different type. So I thought that was really interesting. That a lot of the men around her weren't trying to exploit her; she drew them in because they were trying to protect her, and there was a kind of collaboration in that between them, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. I mean, both this and the inventing Anna are from very long read features in American publications where they pay you proper money to do your research. Nothing. Um, <laughs> I mean, is this the way we go? Is, is this how um, things get sourced? Because, William, obviously you, you want your stuff to get sourced, you know, from, from fiction. So, but sorry, so people love it. They just love a true story. And it's great mm. for it's great for the people that fund this stuff because all the groundwork is done. You don't have to sell anybody the seed of a story. It's there. It's in the background. And so you can set it alight if you do a good job. We're in a golden age of television and they are buying properties like nobody's business, (laughs) which is very fortunate for us writers. Mm. But it means that those properties that had long ago not neglected are getting looked at because they just want stories they can pitch at a meeting. And, uh, you know, these are really great stories you can pitch at a meeting. Mm. I was saying this to my mum a few weeks ago because whenever we are trying to watch something as TV on TV as a family, my mum default always says I'd like to watch a nice courtroom drama. And I really feel like we're going into the era of the newsroom drama and also true crime ties in with that Mm. as well Mm. and that's what has been playing in my mind at the front front of watching this but also of watching Inventing Anna as to whether this is a new kind of history making and whether it is also quite exploitative in the same way that true crime can be. Mm. It it was good I mean it's really interesting sort of sense of baddie because let's you know everything she did wasn't bad I I met other scientists who were trying to develop very similar stuff when I was Mm working and you kind of think this is really brilliant and after all she did uh, manage to take 20 million dollars off Rupert Murdoch (laughs) so she can't 120 million million. yes I believe I mean sometimes does it never occur to you or I I sometimes think that if any of us or if, if, if for instance somebody wanted to pin a federal case on me and they put me in the mm. dock, I would get 20 years easy. Or like 20 <laughs> years, 80 years. I, I, I don't know. That's the thing. I've done something. Yeah. And yeah. If, if you okay. go into the dock and if they dig, you they'll, mm. they can put you away. I mean, it's like your Twitter feed, isn't it? It's like, what did I say 15 a, years ago? You know, ago. it's just like that evil and, and stupidity was quite generalised, but lots of people got away with it. I mean, Elon Musk did some quite weird stuff, which we probably won't be able to put in. But, you know, um, <laughs> you, know you know, he's done. I mean, like the, when he was at PayPal, he... Um, he was he was sacked for saying it should be running on Windows, which obviously should never have been running on Windows, but he walked away with millions from that moment. So lots of really stupid things mm. was going on. Mm. Well, I think this is fascinating, especially because Amanda Seyfried is so good. It's about a really complicated female main character, which is really important to see. Um, and I did lap it up. As I say, I, I know when I really like something, it's when I don't want to binge it. Well, I do want to sort of stay with it a little bit longer. So I very much recommend, we all recommend Definitely.
Now, time for some more music. What current tune is on our special guest Stuart Murdoch's turntable as we speak? Well, um, Carve a Pattern by Butcher Boy. Is that the one you have? Because (laughs) it never set the world alight. So I'm glad that you managed to find it. Butcher Boy are a, a band from Glasgow that have been working away for the past 10 or 15 years. They're bringing out a compilation called You Had a Kind Face. And this song is my favorite song on there. It's not been, the compilation isn't released yet, but it was originally on a record called React or Die. So you can actually listen to Carver Pattern. Kissing with your eyes closed You shouldn't be standing where the light shows I try to tell you but the words are lost in a morning crush You carve a perfect rose in the door And I don't care how lucky we are Cause you still come to me so beautifully Lock the heart with a birthday card And then swallow the key Pretend to drown and I'll pretend to breathe With blood and tissue I will miss you But don't follow me in Pretend to drown and I'll pretend to swim With my hands But you don't see them It's hard to laugh And it's hard to cry But it's harder still to die To swallow the surf and the tide To face a lonely mind Thank you. 
the key Pretend to drown and up and pretend to breathe With blood and tissue I will miss you But don't follow me in Pretend to drown and I'll pretend to swim Station. Not a Met Office initiative or a failed Duran Duran offshoot, but the brainchild of Canadian musician Tamara Linderman. The new album, How Is It That I Should Look at the Stars, is out today and features her trademark, thoughtful, sad lady folk. She says, I had no idea if I wanted anyone to ever hear these songs, but I also felt like they were the best songs I'd ever written. But what did us tough nuts think of it? We're going to put to talk about on the playlist so you can listen at your leisure. Link in the show notes. Good idea for a T-shirt slogan, Yelena. Link in the show notes. Who don't think the way you do When I'm tired of unraveling All the endless skies of truth Oh, I only want to talk about you it that I Should Look at the Stars was recorded as live in Toronto in March 2020 and was entirely self-funded with a band of accompanying jazz musicians. Stuart Murdoch, were you familiar with the Weber station? I wasn't. Ah, what did you think of this album? So I, I have listened to the album and, I've, and mm. I delved into the Weather Station back mm-hmm. catalogue as well. And I would say actually that this is definitely an experiment. Uh, a departure she wanted this to be a companion piece to the previous lp ignorance she was writing a lot during lockdown and i think that's that's i can really uh, i'm really into that notion that something original and different comes off the back of something else so that mm-hmm. that's definitely to be applauded and the fact she worked mm-hmm. with with another band so the risk that she's taken and um, she's funded it, gone to the extent of funding it herself. Mm. I must say, though, I didn't quite like it as much as the earlier uh, Weather Station records. It's, it didn't, it didn't quite make it for me. Mm-hmm. There was things that I really liked about it. Uh, the the arrangements are beautiful. The, the sound yes, of the, the, absolute, the, yes. the sound of the record. You know, I like drums. I like a band. Also, it was very much based around her playing the piano and I'm not sure if I think she's a guitar player as well there comes a time when you record a whole record on piano with your voice the piano starts to sound a little bit claustrophobic a a grand piano Mm -hmm. like that starts to sound a little bit like a blanket it can sometimes smother the voice even if it's mixed well unless you're playing lightly she's thought it she's playing the piano a little bit like I would play I'd very quite simply with simple backing chords and after a while that gets uh, gets a little bit tired i understand what you mean because it is the same and it's all in the same key which is great but it does become a blanket i found that quite comforting we're talking about ignorance which was out last year 
Ignorance is very different if you haven't heard it. There's lots of drums. It's more of a rock sound. There's a lot more energy to that. So this is very much a companion piece, but very, very different. William, what were your thoughts? Had you heard of The Weather Station? I had not heard of The Weather Station. And and I went back as well and listened to Ignorance mm. and, and was kind of really surprised at how different this was. Mm. And it is very meditative. It's sort of like, you know, for those sort of geeks of the sort of thing, Harold Budd sort of piano, just, That's a good point, just um, yeah. flicking away, very linear. Mm. Even the song structures are very sort of linear and, and this kind of sense that it's recorded in a room where she doesn't want to wake up the neighbours. Very close <laughs> mics sort of talking, quite whispery singing, mm. uh, which, I, which is really nice. And it was mm. interesting just thinking about the sort of, um, you know, texture. I, but I think you'd find yourself not listening to it and talking over it very easily. It mm. ended up being a kind of dinner party music uh, and actually to concentrate on it quite hard mm. um, to try and pick anything out. And, and the way in which she's singing means that the words are kind of sometimes a bit lost. As you're saying, I think it was mm. a brilliant observation of the piano. It does get, it it kind of gets too much. Mm. Um, and I quite like the fact that there's no tempo on it. So you've got to be playing intimately and it forces you yes. into that intimate thing because she's really controlling the, the tempo in which the way the songs are living because there's no drums on it. There's, there's no, drums no at all. percussion at all, the, yeah. The musicians are waiting for her to bring the next phrase, which mm. gives it a really unusual sort of flavour at the moment. You know, it's that sort of jazz quartet sort of feel, but very linear. So it's quite hard to listen to a lot of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Taking up my mantle as the Culture Bunkers youth correspondent, I trialled this album at a, at a similar... Yelena is in her 20s, listeners who can't <laughs> see her. <laughs> as much as I sound like a seasoned critic... <laughs> Um, yeah. And I tried this out at a, a dinner earlier on this week, and mm. yeah, I completely agree. What with were you, you. eating? <laughs> To um, this, I we to... were having homemade falafels and hummus. Okay. Oh, this is a very and a falafels and hummus cake, actually. Oh, yeah. Very nice. That, very... that would go entirely. But I know what you mean is that it's that point where, as William and Stuart have said, you do stop listening. There mm. is a a nice duet, and I would call it a nice duet in the middle, which I think is partly to vary it as well. But then it goes back into that. Carry on, Yelena. It's kind of the perfect accompaniment to a Shrove Tuesday kimchi pancake <laughs> in that, like you said, it provides a very good calming backdrop, but I can't mm. say that there were any specific songs that really stood out for me, especially when you compare to their previous albums, I think. Tried to Tell You is a song that really sticks out mm. in my mind if you're going back and going through mm-hmm. the archives. Um, so, yeah, very calm, very placid. Reminded me a lot, actually, of Regina Spector, that sort of vibe. So um, I very much got Joni. It's very blue. Mm. There's a bit of Hegira as well, which is one of my favourite albums ever. Um, I could feel that that was coming from there. I've got the old references. Lindemann envisaged the album, she says, almost as a jazz standard record, but with more silence. I mean, this really is something that is not meant to be blared out. This is really something that is is insular and is meant to sort of envelop you. Mm. And there were points when I was completely transported, I thought, and especially because of the news of the week, when you really need to be transported by music. It has to do something to you and take you somewhere. There are elements of this that were so perfect and that I was really surprised that I liked because I'm not usually sad lady folk. You know, I'm, mm. I'm usually, I will veer a little bit towards the disco, that that real bravery in being sensitive and fragile and vulnerable this has got that in spades and when you need that i thought that this would be the perfect thing mm. i get the obviously i get the Joni thing and mm. uh I, I, I was thinking about the hissing of summer lawns record i mean mm. that's one probably my favorite song on the weather station record is called taught which was the third track and at, at one point yes. the piano you've got the steel guitar you have a saxophone mm. Very tasteful saxophone, good yes. saxophone. Oh, the saxophone uh, is you have beautiful. The, you have the yeah. stand-up bass, and these are yeah. these are all elements. They, they're really working, really nice. To me, that was a kind of a a high point. 
But mm. uh, also the, the listening experience, you, you have to admit that I listened to the record this morning and if I'd stumbled on it uh, late at night when I was mm. winding down, it, yeah. it might have uh, had the chance to envelope my, you know, me more. Yes. Um, but to, to sort of listen to it in the, the bright morning maybe wasn't the mm-hmm. right context. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a guided meditations record, is it not? Yeah, <laughs> you can have that on in the background while you're while you're talking about the sea of sorrow. I mean, I think there is a thread there. Um, some of the lyrics are <laughs> absolutely. I thought about the man who called it a magpie, confronted by the great expanse of his ignorance. He wanted to name it, to detain it. And there is a point where you go, I know a tiny bit of an edge. I just a little bit. <laughs> it's very sanded down. And um, but I was, I was, I was. Absolutely surprised. Given that I, I thought I was listening to a sort of jazz record. Mm. Jazz lyrics are generally awful, so this was a lot <laughs> better than better. that. I don't think it's got enough robots on for co-presenter <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> I think he's probably glad he skipped this one. But there are points. I'd put some of these songs on a playlist. I'd tape them for somebody. Mm. And especially Marsh, the first track, I thought was just absolutely astonishing. Yeah, and I really, yeah. you know, just, just as you were saying, I think it's fantastic when artists condone take the time and do that mm. and actually sort of play with something completely different. Now, as regular listeners will know, we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time. It's a tough job. <laughs> Someone has to do it. Stuart, what have you chosen and why? I mean, being a musician, I get asked this all the time. And if I was to, mm. if I was, I'd end up talking about the same Cocteau Twins record over and over <laughs> until, the point I, until the point I hated it. So if you don't, but the thing is, I, at the same time though, I ha, I have records that pop up, and I say to myself, "This is the greatest record of all time." And just <laughs> last week, it happened to be the Violent Femmes' first record, first LP, the classic. Yeah. You know the you know the, the, it was definitely a classic of its time, nineteen eighty three. What do you like about it? Oh, well, it takes me back to my mid eighties uh, DJing. That's what I did in the from the mid eighties to the end of the eighties. That's mm-hmm. my period of loving music most. And this would get everyone on the dance floor. Absolutely, yeah. There's the, <laughs> this was a guarantee. This is probably one of twenty records that I had at the time. Which, if things were going badly, or you wanted to mm. really start the night, um, mm. you just you put on uh, add it up or gone daddy gone or blister in the sun, and it would be like like that. It would. Yeah. It's such a distinctive sound uh i don't think anybody you, you couldn't say the 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 first violent femmes record really sounded like anything else that went before you know a little bit of mm-hmm. jonathan richmond a bit of velvet undergrounds but the only ones but it's its own thing mm-hmm. and maybe people tried to sound like that afterwards but nothing ever sounded like that so add it up by the violent femmes goes on the playlist and william what's your favorite record of all time <laughs> well my favorite record of all time like stuart changes by the minute and the minute you asked me it was it was the b52's love shack and i've been watching um summer of soul as everybody has been doing and and there's that wonderful section you know in when they start talking about ecstasy and the ecstatic performance sort of things like that and there's so much ecstatic performance in african-american music and so much white music is trying to trying to emulate that and i just think the b-52's love shack is a really interesting way of white people trying to be ecstatic in the best (laughs) possible way and the other reason is i've got a love shack myself i've got a little shack and whenever we're driving down into in there in the car we always sing it at the top of our voices in the car So Love Shark by the B-52s also goes on our rolling playlist. The link, as you know, is in the show notes and it's on Tidal now too, when Sean remembers to update it. (laughs) 
Right, and with that, we're at the end of the podcast. Oh, no. It's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we donate to the British Red Cross overseas and any other aid charities and then hide from the news and put another record on? Yelena, what's your closing time chatter? So the Belgian singer-songwriter slash rapper Stromae's first <laughs> album in yeah. nine years drops today, Multitude. His lyrics are just snarling and sometimes very savage, mm-hmm. not to mention his music videos too. Songs like Alors en Danse, Tous les Mêmes, Papa Ute, they were the soundtrack to my French A-level, so I'm very, very, <laughs> very excited. So he helped learn you. He did yeah. help learn me. And mm-hmm. uh, L'Enfer, which is the first single, if that's anything to go by, then the whole album, which goes, comes out today, will be unmissable. Stuart, is there anything that's been niggling you culture-wise we could have for your closing time chatter? We've got two young children. And so this is, I know young children aren't listening to the broadcast, but uh, maybe their parents are. And there's a show (laughs) from Australia that is on Disney+. Plus. It might even be on the BBC. It's called Bluey. I don't know if any of you guys are (laughs) aware of the the show called Bluey. Um, It's a kind of show... um, it's about a it's about a, a typical Australian family, but they're they're all dogs. It's cartoon show. They're all but they're very but they're very much human at the same time. And it's the sort of show that you're sitting with your kid watching it, and he loves it for the silliness and the daftness, and uh, and they, they really are the best parents. I wish I could be like them. But, <laughs> uh, and a, a fictional dog, a fictional parent. dog parents, but you want to be yeah. like them. They're they're mm-hmm. amazing. They let their kids play. They let them do what they want. They're just they're great. But at the end of every, pretty much the end of every show for the adults, there's a moment. It's a very poignant moment. There's something poignant about every show. It really delivers. And maybe that goes over the heads of the kids, but it's a, it gets us every time. So we recommend Bluey. Okay, Bluey for adults too, I think. Yeah. Sean, what's your closing time chatter this week? Well, the wonderful Electric Palace Cinema in Hastings, which I have indeed been to, are... Having a uh, crowdfunder, which I think is still up, which you can do to save the Electric Palace. It's a tiny, tiny place in Hastings, as I say, and it really needs support. They also put on fantastic films. Now, they were listening to Guy Garvey's Culture Bunker, where he talked about Paolo Sorrentino's Consequences of Love, which is his favourite film and is in my top ten at least. It's a fantastic film. They're showing it on Sunday, April the 3rd as a special. So we say, book your ticket. Save the Electric Palace and go and see one of the best films ever made. It's a lovely place. So it's on their website, electricpalacecinema.com. You can find it if you search. I would just like to endorse that. They asked me to present, um, to choose a film the other day, and I chose um, The Long Goodbye, the um, Altman version. It's fantastic. And it was just lovely. It was such a lovely little space. They're a really brilliant little cinema, as you say, well worth supporting. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to Stuart Murdoch and William Shaw for joining us on The Culture Bunker. May you both have the most wonderful of weekends. Thanks, guys. It was lovely to be on the show. Thanks. Very lovely. And it's a lovely album. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget, you can get Stuart's lovely album and all the (laughs) tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. And one day, the artist will get paid. From myself and Sean and my fellow producer Alex Reese, thank you all for listening. We will see you next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Sean Pattenden, Yelna Sofronievich, and Andrew Harrison. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, still dreaming of horses. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>